0: Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com/slash media people podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or Castbox. Views expressed by participants are personal. Today's guest is Dave Howlett, RHB. He's the founder and managing director of Real Human Being, Inc., a keynote speaking company focused on helping organizations and their employees. Break down silos in order to transcend tribalism in the workplace and at home. But being an entrepreneur is just one of the many hats this self-proclaimed military brat wears. Dave is also a distinguished Toastmaster, veteran scuba dive instructor, triathlete, and most recently, published author. Dave Howlett drops by to chat with us about growing up in a military family during the Cold War the perfect pitch for selling an electric toothbrush to dentists, his personal experiences with entrepreneurship and the real human being philosophy for breaking down silos and shifting gears. Dave, let's uh, start with the three letters at the end of your name, RHB. When you look up Dave Howlett on LinkedIn, you find those three letters, not CMA or CPA or MBA, but uh, RHB. What does RHB stand for?
1: Well, the best way to answer that is with a little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, a guy came up to me after one of my keynote speeches and he said, uh, he said, you ever notice how people put people in categories? And we judge people by their appearance, their age, their religion, where they work in a company. I said, yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. He said, I got invited to go to a conference in the U.S. Event planner called me up and she said, I need all the degrees uh, behind your name for the, uh, the nameplate. And uh, he said, uh, she said, I need your first and last name. We put all this on the name tag. And he said, you know what? Don't do that. Just put my first name down, A-D-I. It's pronounced Addy. I find when I go to a large conference, I like to network with people. I can do it just with my first name. And she said, sorry, uh, it's a prestigious conference. We're going to need your first name, your last name, and all your degrees because people are going to network based on where you went to school. Do you have a PhD? Do you have a postdoc? Do you have a medical degree? Yada, 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 yada. So he said, all right. Anyway, he said he got down there. And within 20 minutes, the president of a very large company started talking to him. And he kept looking at his name tag. And finally, Victor, he said, uh, Addie, uh, I recognize all your credentials, but what is RHB on your name tag? And he said, Real human being. And uh, the guy laughed, but then he started taking around and introducing a whole bunch of other people, saying, I'd like you all to meet Dr. Treasury Walla. He's an RHB, you know. So he told, <laughs> me that, told me that story. And I thought, oh, it's a cute story. You know, don't judge a book by its cover, treat us all like human beings. So I threw that into a talk about a week later. And right afterwards, a lady came up to me and she said, um, Uh, I'd like to hire you to speak at our company conference. And I said, oh, thank you very much. Is there anything I said that struck a nerve? She said, well, in our company, sales hates marketing. Marketing hates IT. Nobody likes HR. and everybody hates that office. We need more RHBs in the company. So the next day, you know, like a good entrepreneur, I went out and I uh, contacted a trademark lawyer and I registered RHB and real human being. And here I am
0: today. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, real human being Inc., your company. Just give us the notes or the elevator pitch as to what it is.
1: RHB is a philosophy of basically how to be one of the good guys. We're we're overloaded with information. We're overloaded with data. We meet, you know, maybe 10,000 years ago, you might have met 50 people in your entire lifetime. You know, your tribe and another tribe in the next valley. But now we can meet 500 people a day. So RHB really is, uh, how do you know how to trust somebody and like somebody? How do you how do you cut through all the stuff and say, hey, I could work with this person. I could hire this person. That's really what I teach.
0: Before we go any further with uh, real human beings, I want to jump into that a little bit more. Let's learn a bit about how we got there or how you got there. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from?
1: My dad was in the military. So uh, my background kind of lent itself to my personality. I I have no hometown. Uh, I've lived went to about eight different schools by the time i finished high school lived across canada lived in europe and uh probably traveling every two or three years made realized realize the greatest truth of all which lends itself well to rhb which is there are good people wherever you go and there's a few goofballs wherever you go and you can't put people in a category
0: okay so because you've lived in a number of different places uh let's start within canada is there one place that uh, you call home or that defined you uh
1: no actually that's a really good question but the answer is absolutely not um I did grow up on small military bases, and uh, if any of your listeners grew up in a small town, um that was my life basically. everybody knew everybody, all the dads kind of worked together at the same plant, and uh, there's an old adage which is if you're going to buy a car, get it from somebody in a small town, why. Because if you run a successful business in a small town, you've got to be somewhat honest because everybody talks in a small town. So that's really what stood in my mind, which is growing up in these kind of small communities where everybody knew everybody.
0: What about in Europe? Was there anywhere that defined you? Because I imagine the number of military bases you lived at in Canada, even though there were their differences, I'm sure there were some similarities as well. But I imagine Europe – Was completely different.
1: We were basically working class kids who lived on a military base during the Cold War, and while you know kids in Ontario got to go to the Science Center or Niagara Falls for a school trip, we went to uh, London, England. We went across the battlefields of Europe. We went skiing in the Alps. Uh, We went to uh, East Berlin. Um, I tell you, living in Europe as a high school kid gave me an insight into life that. A lot of Canadian kids didn't have Uh, one thing that actually was central to me starting my company and real human being was uh, going to an abandoned graveyard outside of a small German village. And my mother and my dad, my brother's all wondering why this graveyard didn't have flowers on it like the normal um, German graveyards had. and they're realizing it was a Jewish graveyard and me standing there, you know, on a hot summer day in 1973 going, wow. Imagine that, like there's nobody here to look after these graves because at one point these people all lived together and and they were neighbors and then a few years later they were killing each other and that's just not an experience you get in Canada.
0: No, absolutely. I'd say we've been really isolated from, I mean, we hear about it, we learn about it, but we're isolated from the actual realities of it unless you go over there and travel. But living from place to place on on two, was it two continents you lived on?
1: Uh, That's correct.
0: What were your hobbies or passions? Because I imagine that uh, what you gravitated towards was a lot more diverse than say what – I mean the average Canadian kid who probably listened to the same type of music as their friends, all played hockey, possibly baseball or lacrosse in the summer. I mean what did you do for fun?
1: Uh, I was a band geek, so uh, I made the choice of playing the most unpopular instrument known never to attract women, which was the clarinet, right? Uh, I was going
0: to say the flute, but okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, flute, you know, the one guy playing the flute, the girls think he's, he's an outlier, but uh, no, there's no way three cute girls are walking down the street and you see a garage door open and there's three dudes in there playing clarinets and they go, those guys are hot, man. We got to get with those guys over there. So, uh, yeah, I was a... Uh, I'd skipped the grades, so I was short. I had kind of reddish hair and freckles playing the clarinet and uh, had a smart-out key sense of humor. So, uh, yeah, that was my life.
0: But you ended up coming back to Canada for university. What brought you back to uh, the University of Guelph? Or actually, what brought you back to Canada for university? Because I imagine when you've lived in, and I've had the opportunity to live in Europe as well, when you kind of get out of your comfort zone, everything else seems to be much more comfortable, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, it does a bit. I mean, uh, there are two types of, we call ourselves military brats, people who moved around a lot because their parents were in the military. They're the kind of, as soon as their dad retires or as soon as they finish high school, they never want to move again. They settle in one spot because they really resisted that constant travel. I was the opposite. Uh, You know, Dad got transferred back to Canada. Uh, I always had a dream of being a marine biologist. Even in grade three, I think I wrote an essay about when I grew up, I'm going to be a scuba diver. So I had this dream of you know, swimming with whales and dolphins. And so when I came back to Canada, uh, I started at the University of Guelph in marine biology. And
0: Dave, after graduation, what was your uh, first gig out of university?
1: Well, my first gig was one that uh, I initially didn't choose. It was uh, joining the military. Um, A lot of students graduate from university, look around their dream profession isn't available, even though they might have a degree. So I graduated at the University of Guelph. I had a science degree, but the jobs for marine biology were few and far between. So I decided to become a a naval officer. I always loved the water, um, and that's what I did. I joined the military, paid off my student loans, did that for a couple of years, and then realized my heart was really underwater. So I went to commercial dive school. I did underwater welding and construction. And then a couple of years after that, uh, met a buddy of mine in Ottawa. We started a scuba diving store, became scuba instructors. And at one point, we were one of the top three uh, productive dive stores in Canada. What do you find so attractive about scuba diving? What, what draws you into that? Uh, I don't really know. It could be some karma genetic thing. But uh, ever since I was a little kid, I had a fascination with underwater. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just always loved to do it. I was comfortable in the water. Um, and uh, even to this day, uh, my wife and I do triathlons. We train for all these Ironman competitions. In fact, I was swimming a few kilometers in the pool this morning. To me, it's not even like being in the water. It's like being in another room.
0: I wanted to ask you about that, uh, being a triathlete and your scuba diving. I was going to ask it later on, but it, it's come up now. It's a nice segue. On your LinkedIn or actually, sorry, on your website, you speak a lot about uh, spending 10 years focused on those sorts of things, and then you consider yourself an expert after that. Is 10 years kind of a litmus test for you to say that I've mastered something?
1: Yeah, I don't use the word mastering. I think life is a learning process. Uh, I have discovered a great secret in life. You know, sometimes we get told by uh, uh, universities, colleges, gurus, and in industries that uh, that uh, we're going to, you know, at a certain period of time, we're going to master something. I've always found that uh, staying open-minded is probably the greatest learning experience there is. Uh, but whatever thing I've ever got into, whether it was uh, whether it was Toastmasters or marathon running or triathlon, um, my heart's always been involved in teaching. So whatever our sport or activity I usually get into, sooner or later I start teaching it to other people.
0: Tell us a little bit about your time with Toastmasters because I find that's one of the most underrated programs people can join to uh, really develop that skill set of public speaking.
1: Yeah, I got to tell you, for any of your listeners out there who don't know about Toastmasters, it's an international organization that was started in the early 1920s um, and uh, gives you instant credibility. Remember, I'd been a scuba instructor for a bunch of years when I met my wife, and uh, and I knew I'd have to kind of segue out of that and get, quote, a real job. So at about 32 years old, we'd moved to Oakville. I joined the local Toastmaster Group, which is an international organization that's told you how to stand up, present, and speak well. I've been a member for two weeks. I went in for an interview with a pharmaceutical company. Now, I knew how to speak because I've been teaching diving for eight years. I knew how to sell because I'd run a retail store. But the guy looked at my resume. I had no credibility, just a guy with a science degree, military background, and a scuba instructor. And then all of a sudden, his eyes landed on Toastmasters. And he said, wow, so you could actually teach my employees how to speak well? And I went, sure. (laughs) Um, Now, I'd only been a member for two weeks, but... (laughs) <laughs> um I, I will tell you, a lot of hiring managers, when they see Toastmasters on a resume, uh, it gives you an edge. And the reason it gives you an edge, that old Jerry Seinfeld line is actually true. A lot of people, during a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogies. It takes guts to stand up and present.
0: <laughs> takes That's a great one.
1: Up. Yeah, it takes guts to stand up and present to other people. and uh, so And a lot of people gravitate away from that. So if you can uh, master the ability to stand and deliver material and be comfortable and get to the point where you actually like it, that's a huge advantage in the uh, business and entrepreneurial world.
0: Storytelling is completely underrated. Absolutely. I've always said to people, and I remember saying this to one boss years ago when I was at CBC, let's try not sending people to courses about public speaking, like not Toastmasters, I'm talking about other type of like night school courses. I always thought it would be good to send someone to an acting school. Just a light one, so they really learn all about storytelling more than anything else. Rather than just reading something off of a PowerPoint presentation.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I will tell you, uh, you know, my wife has always given me heck because I'm the guy who talks to the checkout girl. I'm the guy who talks to the waiter. I'm talk guy who talks to everybody because I feel, Victor, everybody's got a story. Okay, everybody has a story. One common line I use to strike up conversations with a lot of different people. You know, this morning I was at a garage and I was talking to the mechanic. I said, "How long have you been a mechanic?" He goes, "Oh, 25 years." And I said, I bet you have a book inside you. And he goes, oh, I could write a book. And as soon as you say to anybody, I bet you you could write a book, they always nod and go, I can write a book, because it's all about stories. And if you talk to most people, people are full of stories.
0: It's true. Storytelling really is the key skill that they don't really teach too much in university or college. But I wanted to ask you about uh, one of your gigs, Gensai. How did you land there and what did you do?
1: Jensai uh, was uh, a medical device company. Um, my first job was with a large pharmaceutical company, and they divested themselves of a division, so we actually formed our own entity called Jensai. Uh, I was a sales rep for Jensai. De- uh, our target market were dentists, and um, originally, I just started off by selling uh, things like electric toothbrushes, uh, anesthetic—you uh, know—that they would inject to freeze you before a dental uh, procedure. And then we morphed into kind of a dental implant company. This is where uh, uh, people would have an implant put in their mouth or kind of like a permanent tooth. Um, Now, I I think I was pretty good at it because, uh, uh, remember, I'd run my own retail operation. And uh, dentists, for the most part, are retailers, except they don't consider themselves as such. So uh, I really saw a lot of value in dentistry. Um, There's a reason why when we want to dress up on Halloween for someone who has no money or somebody who is down their luck, we always put in a set of bad teeth, (laughs) right? Because as human beings, we judge people a lot by the shape of their teeth. Um, So I have a lot of admiration for the industry of dentistry because it actually gives people a lot of self-esteem. So yeah, that's what I did. I was a dental sales rep.
0: What is that sales pitch like then when you're selling someone teeth? Like I sell media and I have to go through a whole dog and pony show to tell a story, but I imagine teeth are a little bit different.
1: Yeah, they are. Uh, the biggest impediment that a lot of dentists and hygienists face is they don't think like patients. They think like dentists and hygienists. I'll give you an example. One of the products I sold was Sonicare, the sonic cleaning toothbrush. You've probably seen it advertised. I
0: think it's owned by Philips now. The the that's electric correct. toothbrush. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar and with
1: it. At, at one point, I was the top Sonicare rep in Canada, and uh, I didn't sell one Sonicare for the first few months because it used to retail for $189.99. Now that's a lot of money for an electric toothbrush, and. Uh, but here's the greatest secret all, you know, don't think like yourself, think like your clients. So I'd walk into a dental office, talk to a hygienist, and I'd say, uh, Sonicare, the Sonic Cleaning t- Toothbrush, 31,000 strokes per minute, you should sell these to your patients. And she would open up his mouth, her mouth, and it'd be like a biblical movie, you know, where the uh, the music comes down and the light bounces off, kind of like Moses raising his staff, and she'd open up her mouth, and I'd see these brilliant white teeth and pink gums, and she'd say... Look at my teeth and gums. I got this way with a manual brush and a piece of floss. Why would anybody have to spend $189? And, of course, you know, my enthusiasm would dim until one day I hit on the answer. This hygienist opened up her mouth, showed me your beautiful teeth, and, you know, told me she didn't need to buy an electric toothbrush. And I said, no, you don't. I said, but let me ask you, how many patients have teeth like yours? And all of a sudden the music stopped and she got the sad look on her face. And she said, well, not a lot. I said, well, why not? What are you doing wrong? I mean, you've been... Having some of these folks as patients for 10 years, why, why haven't they got, why aren't they brushing and flossing as much as you are? She goes, I don't know. I, I just really haven't convinced them yet. I said, well, can I give you a suggestion? She said, yeah. I said, do you own a car? She goes, yeah. I said, what do you do when the car gets dirty? She goes, I take it through an electric car wash, an automatic car wash. And I went, Whoa! Oh, why don't you manually wash your car? Uh, I like that. It's cheaper, you'll do a better job. She goes, well, no, I just like to save time. I said, okay, so this is a toothbrush that's kind of like a car wash. Your patients are not incentivized like you to take care of their mouth because they don't work in a dental office. Your mouth is your billboard. But for most patients, their mouth isn't their billboard and they're never going to be as motivated as you are. So this is a car wash for their mouth. They will pay for what they consider to be important to them, not to you. And with that, I really realized how to sell a
0: product. I am not a dentist, but I got to tell you, if I was one, that would have sold me right there. That was probably one of the best sales pitches I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. So after you left the dental industry, where did you land next?
1: Well, I got headhunted to be a a vice president of sales and marketing for a startup company. Um, The inventor had invented a body-mounted tactical camera. Uh, We were going to sell it to U.S. Homeland Security, to customs, uh, to police, uh, basically it was a long camera went around corners to look for bad guys or look for uh, uh, contraband that people snuck into into shipments um, so we went public we did what we call an rto a reverse takeover we bought a shell company in the united states and we had about enough capital to last a year but when you're dealing with very large clients there's a long sales cycle and you know we basically ran out of money so at the age of 45 i was unemployed
0: was that your first time
1: being unemployed yeah it was the first time and uh but i will tell you uh, I had one advantage a lot of people don't, and that remember I've been an entrepreneur. I'd started a company, a scuba diving business, in my twenties. So um, basically, you eat what you kill. You know, if you don't work hard, you don't make any money. So I'd never, I'd been a salaried employee, but I'd also been an entrepreneur and started my own business. And when you're an entrepreneur your risk tolerance is a little bit different. You look at this as an opportunity to make something of yourself and make a lot of money and make an impact in the world versus, oh, my God, i got to get a job because I need a paycheck. So I had kind of a more of an entrepreneurial mindset. Is this where you decided to start Real Human Being? Yeah, actually, Real Human Being, most people say business ideas come out of inspiration. Real Human Being actually came out of desperation. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the story behind it was I was – I was hired by an insurance brokerage uh, to bring in new clients. Um, In the industry, we call it a rainmaker. And uh, so they said, you know, you bring in new life science clients. They wanted to open up a new commercial wing. And I said, do you have any right now? And they said, no. And I said, are you well known? Will my business card get me any appointments? They said, no. And I said, well, I don't know anything about insurance. They said, we don't want you to. We just want you to get us new clients. So uh, I thought, well, how am I going to do this? Well, remember, I've been a Toastmaster for 10 years I knew how to speak well I knew how to sell well so like any good entrepreneur I researched my industry and I found that uh, what the life science industry needed was they needed money they needed capital and to get that they needed people learning how to present themselves and how to pitch so I put together two lectures one was called how to network for success and the other one's called how to sell from the podium and I ran around Ontario giving them away for free and um, trying to get my name out there my last slide of my presentation victor was and by the way i work for an insurance program <laughs> if you know the president or cfo of a life science company i'd love an introduction in fact here's 20 companies i'd love to be introduced to and it was a validation of the premise to get you got to give because guys start coming up to me after the talk saying uh, hey i golf with the president of that company you want me to introduce you so within six months i was generating a lot of leads and after about a year i decided
0: to go out full-time become a professional speaker It's like the early days of social selling, that technique where people are using social media to sell themselves in sort of a, I don't want to say a a passive way, but you're not targeting someone directly, you're targeting an audience. And that's exactly what you were doing there as you were going out and speaking to entire companies and conferences.
1: Absolutely right. Look, when people don't know how to sell, uh, we'll talk about RHP in a second, but they, they sell what I call first gear, in other words, narrow self-interest, okay? And that's why if you go to Bing or you go to Google and you, you go to images and you type in salesperson, you see some pretty unflattering images, but that's not selling. That's bad selling. And most people don't know how to sell. They talk about their product too much.
0: Nice segue into RHB. You mentioned earlier where real human being came from, but you mentioned first gear because it's part of the RHB philosophy. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There are three gears to the philosophy. Let's start with first gear.
1: Yeah, first gear, uh, well, I was driving down a highway one time and there was bumper-to-bumper traffic and I was late for an appointment. And I was getting upset and there was a guy trying to merge in front of me. And like a lot of your listeners, you know, when you get stressed and you're, you're crunch for time, you tend to, like, look out for number one. So I wouldn't let the dude in. I crept up really close to the bumper, the guy in front of me. You know, I wouldn't look at him because you don't look at the guy when you're not letting him in. And, uh, you know, I'm think would get behind me. And uh, so then I started thinking after that, going, you know, that was kind of a weedy thing to do, but uh, hey, you know, me first, me second. And that was the genesis of RHB because then I, I had a little while on that highway and I started thinking, okay, what were all the bad things that happened in a company, in a business? And I thought, wow, they're narrow self interest behaviors. When you think about it, uh, taking credit for other people's work being arrogant uh hogging the limelight these are all narrow self-interest they're first gear but in a community uh first gear narrow self-interest would be uh would be what most religions call sins. so that would be like uh, bullying arrogance theft uh hurting somebody else to get something for yourself and i had this revelation sitting behind the wheel of my car which is most evil of humanity is what i call first gear behavior which is i'm going to hurt you and get some of your stuff for me what about second gear Well, second gear is uh, how the world works. Second gear is what we call uh, reciprocity or extrinsic reward. So if I was back on that highway again and the dude was trying to get in front of me, you know, I do what a lot of people do. They got a little bit of time or their parents raised them, right? You give them the little Queen of England wave, you know, where you wave the guy in and uh, Mm -hmm. the guy pulls in front of you, you feel pretty good. Uh, But let me ask you, Victor, after you wave that guy in front of you, what do most people want after you wave the car, let them in front of you?
0: If they're in front of you, you probably want to see their hand come up and say thank you back. You got it, man. And that's that's second gear.
1: So second gear is I help you, but you got to give me something, okay? And in a, in a highway, it would be looking for your thank you wave. In a company, it would be be a paycheck, okay, which is, you know, honest days work for an honest day's pay. Uh, for an entrepreneur, it would be I deliver a product and I get compensated for it. And a relationship would be, uh, you know, okay, I don't want to go to this movie, but you know what, I'll go with you this time, And next time we get to go to the movie that I want. So second gear is basically economists would say, you can explain human nature by incentive systems. And that's what second gear is. It's incentive-based behavior. And third gear? Third gear is something special. I didn't hit on third gear until about two years of being a professional speaker. Um, one day I just put a slide together, which is, you know, the eight things that people will, eight things you'll do that, why would somebody help you out? It was for a group of students. You know, they're going to help you be, as a favor for someone else. They're going to help you because you're good looking. They're going to help you because you get paid for it. And for, And the last point, I just thought, was, well, they're going to help you because it's the right thing to do. So I just threw that in at the bottom of the slide. And I hadn't applied a gear to it. And then one day I was on a highway, and I let a guy in, and he didn't wait thank you. And I was about to get ready to get upset, and I go, wait a minute. Did you help the guy in for a thank you, or did you help him because it was the right thing to do? And at that moment, third gear was born. And third gear is what we call intrinsic reward, which is you do it because it's the right thing to do. You do it because uh that's your reputation you're trying to be a good guy You're trying to be an amazing woman and hey don't get me wrong i love getting a wave i love getting paid but any good business person will tell you sometimes you don't get a payoff right away so third gear is a long-term reputational type of mindset which is paying it forward
0: pays the bottom line and you've taken this philosophy and you've got a whole uh, lecture around it all across the globe
1: yeah, pretty well. Uh, I had a CEO a couple of years ago, Victor came up to me and he said, uh, can I be honest with you? <laughs> One thing about CEOs, they usually shoot from the hip, you know, they're usually pretty straightforward. I said, sure. He goes, there's a lot of speakers talk about what you talk about, you know, uh, intrinsic award, uh, being a good guy, reputation, branding, all that other stuff. Yak, 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 yak. And I went, yeah. And he goes, but you know what you did well? I said, what? He goes, you create a widget. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, don't get offended. I said, I'm not. I'm actually curious. He goes, I've seen that RHB widget on LinkedIn. I've seen it on Facebook. Heck, I've seen it on business cards and on, on resumes. He goes, guys put RHB behind their name or on their profile, just like that Addy Treasury Wallet did. And I said, yeah. And he goes, how'd you think that up? I said, uh, I don't know. People just started doing it. And he said, it's like a moral compass, right? And I said, yeah. And He goes, I got to tell you, if I had to hire somebody right now and there were three resumes in front of me, after hearing your talk, I bring the guy in first with RHB on his profile. And I went, well, hang on. It's not a certification. It's not a course. He goes, no, but it's a moral compass. And that's what you've invented. You've invented a moral compass. That's quite the compliment. Yeah, it is kind of neat. And when you think about it from a traditional point of view, moral compasses were founded by, for the most part, religions, right? Hey, I'm Jewish. You're Jewish. I'm Christian. You're Christian. I'm Muslim. You're Muslim. So I see somebody of my religion. I think, hey, they share the same values. Well, RHB... It's kind of like that. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be non-religious. But it basically means I – not that I'm a good guy. It means I know how to be one, and that's that makes all the difference in the world. So when you see somebody who's got RHP on their profile, it doesn't automatically mean you got to trust them and hire them out. But it just means, hey, they know what the rules are.
0: You've spoken to a diverse number of groups. Is there a group that you thought going in was going to be particularly difficult to speak to and you thought there was going to be, say, a specific outcome? In the end, it turned out to be a lot better than you expected.
1: I've spoken to, you know, universities and and, uh, diverse work groups, uh, large companies, small ones, unionized. Uh, Look, the fact is I've got a bachelor's degree. I don't have an MBA, I don't have a PhD, and I've never been a CEO of a company. Um, A few years ago, I spoke to a networking group of CEOs. And, you know, the guy who actually was bringing me in, it was called the Tech Tech group, and uh, he said, I got to interview you first before I put you in front of these CEOs. He said, Because if they smell blood on you, they'll eat you alive. <laughs> oh, God. And I said, Okay. So, you know, next thing I know, uh, we had coffee together. He goes, Okay, you seem comfortable in your own skin, so I'll put you in front of my guys and you can do your RHB talk. So, you know, I got to tell you, I was a little intimidated because all these guys are running companies, and, you know, you don't get to that level in a company unless you are uh, pretty smart, pretty ambitious, and pretty dynamic. Um, And uh, my stuff went over extremely well because at the end of the day, what most CEOs want is they want something very simple and very powerful that can be taken up by everybody in the company and aligns with their vision of the company. And one guy came up and he said, you know what? Uh, He said, your stuff is kind of universal in scope. And he said, the the
0: more somebody can apply it to different aspects of their life, the more they'll keep it. So he said, yeah, I like your stuff. And just about anyone now can get a hold of your message because you just launched uh, your first book.
1: Yeah, I kind of did the opposite, Victor, of what most speakers do. Most speakers, when they decide they want to make a living speaking, they write a book and then they use it as their card. I, I actually built the RHB brand for six years uh, pretty well internationally. And then finally people kept saying, please do a book, please do a book. So, yeah, uh, launched a book last week. It's holding number one in the Amazon category that it's in. It's called Connect Like a Real Human Being. Um, it'll be the first of a series of books, you know, after that will be sell like a real human being, lead like a real human being, network like a real human being, innovate like a real human being. This one is, uh, basically how to build a, a culture and a company that knocks down silos and builds collaboration.
0: You've got the ebook out. When does the, the hard copy book come out? I still like physical books. Wow. You're old school, man. That's I, so cool. I subscribe to <laughs> magazines as well. I kind of like, to me, those are, that's the type of media that doesn't break down. I hate yeah. knowing that I've got a couple hundred dollar device that might break down and then I can't read. <laughs> I want wow, to be able to read.
1: <laughs> well, the paper, uh, paper just uh, launched today on Amazon.
0: Oh, so, okay. Uh, perfect.
1: Yeah. And I, I gotta tell you, you know, the hardest thing for a lot of business people is you gotta think like a client versus, uh, an entrepreneur. And, uh, I was taken aback how many people want a signed copy of the book. Um, but, uh, I think it goes to what you're talking about. People want a tactile connection to, uh, to uh, not only the philosophy, but the person who wrote the book. So, yeah, you can order one off Amazon, Connect Like a Real Human Being, or, or you can go to realhumanbeing.org and you can order a signed copy.
0: And if anyone listening to this wanted to get in touch with you about potentially booking you for um, a lecture in, th- in front of their company or a session, how would they do that?
1: Uh, just go to realhumanbeing.org and there's a, a contact form. Um, I'd be happy to help you out and answer
0: your questions and see if I can uh, help provide some value. Dave, this has been a fantastic chat. I'm going to close with the same question I ask everyone. If you currently weren't doing RHB, what do you think you'd be doing and why?
1: I think I'd be a teacher or an (laughs) archaeologist. Archaeology because I love history and I love delving back into human behavior. And, you know, the fact is we've always been the same creatures. Uh, Or I'd be a teacher because I just love imparting knowledge. And I'm the type of guy who I actually like seeing other people do well more than myself
0: doing well. You'd rather be the coach than the quarterback? You're absolutely right. Dave, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate this. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.